0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Art. My name is Ricarda, and I'm one of the hosts of the channel. Today, I'm here to talk to Elizabeth Fraser about her latest book, Mediterranean Encounters, Artists Between Europe and the Ottoman Empire between 1774 and 1839, published in 2017 by Pennsylvania State University Press. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth.
1: Thank you, Ricarda.
0: Why don't you start out by telling us a bit about yourself and how you came to the field of art history?
1: Well, uh, when I was uh, a student, art history was uh, going through a lot of changes. Um, It was a very uh, exciting field at that time. Um, And I think that's what attracted me. It was going through a lot of sort of uh, self-reflection. It was the period when I think... uh, Art history began importing sort of methodologies uh, from other fields and really looking to literary criticism or anthropology uh, and uh, sort of social history. And it was a sort of watershed moment of change uh, in the discipline. Um, And it was terribly exciting. Everyone was sort of challenging each other. There was a lot of debate. And uh, I think that's really what galvanized me as a young uh, student. Um, I really wanted to be part of that. Um, and I was uh, drawn particularly, I think, to 19th century France, because at that moment, that was the, the, the field in which a lot of that interrogation was concentrated. Um, a lot of really interesting uh, and a kind of whole a varieties of approaches were all being kind of tested out in 19th century French art. Um, and I think, in some ways, it has to do with um, my current interests in sort of Mediterranean studies and cross-cultural encounters too, because uh, because of this. Uh, it, this also, I think, challenges fundamentally the way we, we do art history or uh, you know, do probably history itself. Um, and I think probably that's, that's for me, the link.
0: Mm, this ties in nicely with my second question question about the title of your book Mediterranean Encounters um and in your words the concept of the Mediterranean as a shared world has received uh much less attention in art history than in in other fields could you elaborate on this and how you chose the body of work uh you discuss in this book
1: yeah definitely I mean uh Uh, The concept of the Mediterranean and Mediterranean studies, um, these are definitely beginning to make big inroads in certain periods in art history, Um, ancient art in particular, medieval, I think also uh, pretty heavily, and perhaps a little bit in the Renaissance, uh, but certainly not in the kind of later early modern period or or the modern period, which has been really dominated by this kind of Orientalist um, discussion, which presumes disconnection rather than, you know, sort of long sustained interactions which is what Mediterranean studies is about. Um, so I wouldn't, you know, I, I would probably want to qualify that and say that, you know, certainly some art historians are paying attention to it. Um, I uh, think that one of the things that's really valuable about this whole Mediterranean studies approach is, you know, being o- sort of ocean-based. This idea of uh, cult kind of culture around an ocean really gets us beyond these standard sort of geopolitical boundaries that we have tended to use to divide up the field, um, very nation-based in particular, French art, English art, et cetera. Um, So that has been very helpful to me in sort of reformulating this period that I'm looking at, 18th and 19th century really, which again has been dominated by a kind of uh, Orientalist um, uh, kind of uh, discussion and and sort of theory. Um, I came to it uh, through my uh, discoveries of Delacroix's Moroccan uh, notebooks. I came to the book, I should say. Um, I saw them in an exhibition. I saw uh, several of them in an exhibition and just was really taken by how different uh, they looked from his other paintings. My first book was on Delacroix uh, in France, uh, and I was uh, trying to understand why he made images that were so fundamentally different from the kinds of both themes, but also handling of his, uh, you know, his approach to to painting. Um, and I so I started thinking about travel images as a genre. I thought, well, maybe that would be a way of kind of understanding what made them specific. And, uh, so I just began looking at a lot of travel imagery from that period, sort of, you know, 18th century, early 19th century, you know, extending back into the 17th century, just to sort of, uh, get some kind of grounding and, uh, uh, sort of understand what he, what he came from, what kind of imagery may have informed, uh, his approach to travel. And uh, the more I looked, the more I realized that what I was looking at was Mediterranean, uh, that, that all of these travel books, uh, these really very incredible objects, uh, took the Mediterranean as their focus. And s- slowly but surely, I began to understand the, the deeper, the more deeply I got into the field, I began to understand that, in fact, uh, the Mediterranean was a very Ottoman Uh, see at that point in time, um, and that I needed to understand the Ottoman Empire. So that's how I finally got to my focus on the Ottomans. In terms of uh, sort of chapters and and deciding what to focus on and which books, it kind of uh, resulted fairly naturally from uh, looking closely at these travel books. It became very clear that... um, that there was a, a particularly uh, important early book by Choisel Gouffier, the voyage pittoresque de la Grèce, the picturesque voyage into Greece that was sort of the um, foundational uh, travel book for most of my uh, travelers. Um, a very influential, very important volume, very beautiful. Um, actually it's three volumes all told. Um, and so I, sort of gradually charted my way through various kinds of responses to that work, um, roughly moving uh, chronologically. And some of those responses were uh, uh, Ottoman responses. Uh, One of my books is um, an uh, Ottoman-sponsored piece that uh, was produced by uh, actually an Ottoman interpreter um, born in the Ottoman Empire, um, originally Ottoman subject um, who made a travel book in France, all the way up to then Delacroix himself who uh, was very clearly aware of Choiseul Gouffier's book um, and also in some sense responded to it. So, So that became the sort of guiding thread throughout the book, sort of this first this first travel book and how the others uh, sort of reworked and responded to it.
0: Let me follow up on the on the idea of the Mediterranean. I'm just wondering how do these travel books that um, take the Mediterranean as their starting point differ, if at all, uh, from other travel books of the uh, famous Grand Tour that um, mostly aristocrats at the time were taking throughout, um, not just the Mediterranean, but also other parts of what we now call Europe? Hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it has to do with the time period, I would say. Uh, but, you know, they overlap, but also geographies. Um, you know, the uh, obviously sort of what we associate with the Grand Tour has a very strong kind of um, Focus on Italy. It's and uh, sort of it expands slowly eastward um, to uh, to to Greece, which was a part of part of the Ottoman Empire at this point, um, and into Anatolia. Um, those are sort of later additions to uh, uh, what consider one considers the Grand Tour. I, I mean, I think. It, there's no sort of absolute difference or contrast. Um, I mean, they're obviously related activities. Um, uh, they come to various themes. Um, you know, they share antiquarianism is a um, you know, big focus of a, a lot of the travel uh, material that I look at. Um, so, yeah, I don't think there's uh, really an absolute contrast. A lot of the figures are aristocrats, for instance, um, but it depends on each case. And I think that's the most important thing to say is that each each book has a slightly different focus because of who is in charge and the particular uh, stakes uh, in making a book and um uh, the historical context, I would say, for each book really, really makes a difference.
0: Great. You show this quite nicely um, in the discussion of each and every travel book um, and even image that you talk about as well. But we'll start out with Comte de Gouffier, uh, whom you've mentioned already, um, and his Voyage Pitoresque de la Grèce, which um, he published shortly after. Um, returning to Paris, as I understand, um, from a long stay in the Ottoman Empire as its ambassador, as well. Um, and, and you show how influential uh, he was in his position as ambas- ambassador and how instrumental he was in forging diplomatic exchanges between the Ottoman and the French court. But you also argue that his voyage pittoresque was pl- probably even more influential. And instrumental, indeed. And I was wondering if you could talk about this one particular book um, with a bit more detail and uh, yeah, introduce it to our listeners, so to speak.
1: Okay. Yes, definitely.
0: Well, um, it was a vast
1: undertaking uh, to make a book like this assumed an extraordinary amount of capital um, and various other kinds of resources that only a very powerful person would have access and other things. Um, The work of many engravers, uh, the work of many researchers. Um, He produced uh, three volumes in total. Um, The first volume appeared in 1782 and that is the one that most people end up talking about because I think it's really sort of the most cohesive uh, piece and when sort of the funding, uh, was most, uh, sort of uh, rich. Um, and the other two volumes were sort of, uh, sort of pulled together, uh, much, much later in time. Um, they are heavily illustrated volumes. Um, they have, uh, uh, illustrations, uh, beautiful, uh, copper engravings. Um, almost every other page, there is text, uh, by Choiseul Gouffier, which responds to, uh, previous travelers in the areas, uh, where he went. He spent quite a bit of time, uh, in fact, uh, in Greece, but he also, uh, enters other areas of the Ottoman Empire, you know, moves eastward, uh, from there. Um, yeah, he's, uh, it became so important that it's cited by everyone afterwards, of course cited by my, my, uh, other authors. Um, and it was a really a collector's object. Um, and it's, I think hard for us to understand how that might work, but that it became, uh, so prestigious that he was nominated into various academies. And as you said, eventually was appointed as ambassador because of, of this, uh, uh great, work uh, that he made. Um, he does clearly sort of uh, move a, against the grain of the Ottoman Empire. He doesn't uh, refer that much to Ottomans. He prefers a kind of uh, classical or antique template uh, or filter through which to see the world that he depicts. Uh, so uh, Asia Minor instead of Anatolia, for instance. Um, those are very important aspects of, of the book itself. He doesn't tend to talk much about contemporary life, although notably he, unlike a lot of other travelers, he also doesn't excise, uh, for instance, when he's traveling through Greece, he does not, uh, try to omit, uh, in his views of, of, of what is depicted mosques for instance, which clearly indicate that Greece is now, um, uh, an Ottoman country, but otherwise he's very biased towards, uh, the kind of classical tradition. Uh, the book is also, uh, Phil Hellenic, uh, very strongly. So, um, taking part in that, uh, sort of European based revival of the notion of ancient Greece and the idea that, um, that Contemporary Greeks are somehow debased, that they have been um, kind of reduced in stature, uh, even sort of that their culture has been sort of polluted by contact with uh, long contact with the Ottomans and that to Return to uh, the classical past will, you know, sort of rejuvenate um, contemporary Greece. Uh, and that's that's very much a position that he shares ultimately with a, a lot of Western European culture. It's not actually something that was uh, of great concern to Greeks at that point in time themselves.
0: And it's in this chapter as well that you compare his work to that of Forbin's, um And in order to uh, talk the reader through different modes of viewing and consuming these illustrated travel books, I find it particularly interesting how you posit that there's no uh, unified approach to the representation of travel encounters in the Near East, and that instead each book, and indeed especially in the case of folding each image, deserves to be looked at as an independent work of art, and you've mentioned this already in this podcast, um, to an extent, you seem to juxtapose Trezant and Forbin's images, uh, the former depicting Ottoman Greece in an ordered and domesticated way, whereas the latter the allows for spontaneity in his lithobra- Um To me, to my mind, um, and I'm happy to discuss this with you, Forbin seems to be uh, kind of more dedicated to the idea of the picturesque and potentially, arguably, the sublime as well, um, as introduced in the late eighteenth century. And I was wondering if you could comment on that. Um,
1: yeah, of course. That's 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 interesting. Um, yes, they are very different books, and that was, of course, part of the point is to really. Uh, um, Really pay attention to the way in which each travel book uh, has its own particularities and therefore it kind of inflects any overarching messages that we may try to attribute to a corpus of books like this. Um, that in each case, we really have to look a lot more closely than people had done, um, at text and image relationships, uh, uh the relationship among, uh, among images and such. I think that's really important. Um, and of course, one of the major differences is that, uh, Choiseul Gouffier made his book, um, in the latish 18th century and is using uh, copper engravings. Um, and Forbain's book was made, uh, you know, in the you know second decade of, uh, the 19th century and is lithographic. And so they look very different. Um, and that, I think that's, uh, really important, um, the, the kind of softness of lithography, um, and the kind of drawn qualities of lithography that I think automatically give it a kind of looser, uh, sketchier sort of feeling that conveys, uh, that feeling of spontaneity that I was, that I was talking about, uh, whereas the, uh, Schwezel's engravings are much more tightly conceived and, you know, very masterful um, printmaking um, skills are really exhibited uh, in them. Um, I think that uh, one of the things that's really interesting about looking closely at those kinds of images, particularly in the case of uh, Fourbin, where almost all the images are done by different lithographers, so obviously there's some repetitions among the images, is that once we kind of acknowledge that and see how differently each image looks um, and realize that Cho- uh, that Fourbin himself did not make those images, that we can no longer really talk about a kind of controlling uh, sort of unified uh, uh, sort of author authorial you know a control over, the book itself. So uh, his text does one thing. He actually does produce uh, images. Um, he doesn't produce the final lithographs. Um, and uh, once we see that variety, we kind of see how uh, it couldn't be for Bain sort of intending one uh, approach or another, but that whatever he th- wanted his project to be had to pass through this filter of all these different makers Um, and so uh, he may have been committed to uh, one aesthetic ideal or another but of course uh, the artists who make his lithographs you know, might pull, uh, pull his work in a, in a different kind of direction. Um, I think that nostalgia is a really good way of thinking about Fourbin. Um, I think the fact that he's revisiting, um, uh, sort of particularly when he's in Egypt, um, he's revisiting places that the Napoleonic army was, uh, In and that he's, you know, looking at these spaces as a Frenchman, uh, who can feel this kind of loss of, you know, the, the the possibility of French empire. I think that really inflects, uh, some of what we see and the lithographs themselves, uh, I think, uh, kind of convey that sense of melancholy. Um, there's a lot of sentiment both in his text and in, uh, in the lithographs, I think, in particular. So that's a very strong difference from Choiseul Gouffier, who is really trying to uh, uh, convince his readers to some degree of the commercial viability of, of Greece, for instance, or, you know, you know, what we would call Ottoman spaces, which he does not call them. Uh, the idea that um, there should be uh, F- French investment and French trade in these areas, I think is a, kind of an underlying idea. So we see a lot of port images um, in, his, um, in his book, and there's a kind of serenity, uh, and as you said, domestication. Um, there's something very inviting and very calm in, uh, uh, in his images, um, which is very different from the approach that we see in Fourbin.
0: Again, let me follow up on this. Can you? Is it possible to reconstruct uh, which of these two uh, different viewpoints um, were more popular amongst the French people at that time? So, um, yeah, was it Choiseul's kind of... Um, Economic investment in uh, Ottoman territory, or Forbin's kind of lost empire, uh, reminiscence of, of a lost empire or territory.
1: Hmm, that's a really Yeah, an interesting question. It's so hard to gauge these things. Uh, we have critics responding. Uh, we have a fair amount of critical response uh, to. To travel books, although a lot of them tend to be synopses, uh, I would say that probably each of them were kind of popular in their time because they really are responding to uh, perspectives of the moment. Um, you, you know, uh, Forbein's book coming so so close after uh, after the fall of you know the Napoleonic Empire, the end of Napoleon's reign, and I I think. Um, his book would automatically be sort of read that way uh, uh, to some degree, um, and uh, Schwazel is looking at a very particular moment uh, in time as well. Uh, there's a lot of concern about uh, Russia Russian uh, engagement um, in conflict with the Ottomans, and the fact that the Russians are sort of um, horning in and you know, uh, uh, taking parts of the Ottoman Empire from the Ottomans. Um, So there's a lot of anxiety in in Western Europe uh, that uh, the Russians will gain the upper hand. Um, And I think uh, Choiseul Gouffier is very aware of these sort of European-level politics um, and wanting to make sure that the French sort of uh, get their hands in, you know, as soon as they can. Um, So I I suspect uh, in that sense that they were both... uh, very popular in their time and speak to the moment of, of that time, uh, as far as we can tell, all of you know they, they, both of them were you know sold well, they appeared in many editions throughout Europe in different languages, so all those things that we can do to know the history of a book itself as an object uh, would certainly suggest their great popularity and, and that would be true of any of the books in the study they, they were all um, you know very very prominent um, uh, publications that that people looked to and uh, you know bought and sold and you know move m- books that moved around quite a bit and and again were translated etc.
0: Great and yet uh, some of these um, have kind of fallen into oblivion today. Um, but we'll come on to that a little later. I want to um, follow up on something that you've uh, mentioned already. Um, and this is a very important point I think you make in this chapter um, which is the question of a single authorship um, of these travel books. And you challenge this common narrative that gives credit only to one great master author um, and fail to acknowledge the collaborative and dialogic nature of these books and the, the many other agents involved in these complex undertakings whom you've mentioned already, cartographers. Uh, specialized researchers, artists, engravers, printers, and so on and so forth. Um, But then you also, and again, you've mentioned this in the podcast already, underscore the intertextuality of travel books, Um, each book referring back to an earlier body of work, each situating itself within a complex web of other travel books. And I was hoping you could uh, say a few more words on this point. Um,
1: yeah for sure um yeah they part of the reason why someone wants to read a a, a travel book is that it claims to give something new of course to to its audience and so there's a lot of one-upmanship it's a very competitive world um and authors are extremely conscious of what has been done previously what uh you know what views have been made available. If they can offer several new views, or maybe a plan or an elevation where that was not given in a previous travel book, uh, so there's an awful lot of citation um, with a kind of competitive eye um, in in all all this travel literature. Um, so that's uh, certainly part of it, and uh, I think that authors assume that they're. Uh, their audience is to some degree aware of these other books. I mean, these the books that I'm talking about are really monumental publications. They're very large books, as I said before, very expensive to produce. So they kind of make a mark in the world uh, in, in a way that's perhaps different from a small, what would be called an octavo book, uh, a much smaller object. These are really hard to handle, hard to move around, very expensive. Again, uh, you know, noticeable landmarks, we might say, in the history of publication. So uh, so one can, you know, an author will know that uh, these other previous landmarks uh, are things that people will be concerned with and will want to understand the relationship. So that's one way in which you could understand that, uh, something that is intertextual. But there are other cases and ways in which uh, simply, uh, I think, the knowledge of, of sort of previous images or texts uh, makes, uh, forms a kind of echo into the text or image of the any given uh, travel book. And I think that's sort of the more profoundly intertextual zone. So one of my examples is um, the very fact that the the description of Egypt, the really famous, uh, massive uh, uh, you know, twenty-one some volumed uh, product of the Napoleonic voyage. That that was uh, something that people would have, of course, been aware of. It wasn't entirely completed when uh, Faubin, uh made uh, his his book. Um, but I think that when he uh, depicts, you know, this view or that view of uh, Egypt, or when his uh, artists do, um, that people were very. Aware of you know the kinds of images you would see in the description of Egypt and could see sort of the gap between them or the difference between them um there's something uh they are engravings the the images in the description of egypt uh very very different uh very sort of um austere almost uh Sometimes even somewhat mechanical looking uh compared to the kind of soft uh, uh velvety qualities of these lithographs that in Forba's book and I think that th- that kind of uh, that his book to some degree relies on that sort of visual expectation and visual knowledge and sort of gives his book and and his images an even more uh kind of as I say nostalgic quality because. Kind of feeling the difference between those so those image types, and so th- for me again, that is a that kind of echo uh, underneath the visual echo underneath any given travel book. I think is a is, is the more profound profoundly uh, uh, intertextual um, aspect of these travel books. Yeah,
0: maybe you could say a few more words on how these books were viewed. Um, because you talk about, you know, their enormous size um, and how they're today difficult to handle. Um, And yet at the time, it must have been an incredible spectacle to turn the pages and kind of, um, you know, not just read through the book, but also kind of wander around the landscape um, as you would do, for example, in comparison to uh, comparing it to, chinese hand scrolls you know which you roll in sequences and it's uh, it's an embodied viewing really exp- an embodied viewing experience i think this um, uh, is the same for these travel books
1: mm-hmm Absolutely. Um,
0: yeah, that for me is
1: was just such a fascinating aspect of doing the the research for this book um, because I had worked really on you know major 19th century easel paintings before so you're dealing with one singular object with clearly one you know one 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 artist you know kind of controlling uh, the process um, and uh, I think that the, the, the fact that they are, you know these large images the fact that you know that that there are so many images put together that you have to experience them as a sequence because they're bound images um is very important to the effect they have it's also one of the reasons why it's very hard to convey this in reproduction or in publication um, because I think the size of these images um, I mean some of some of the prints and some of the travel books I looked at are several feet by several feet um, so when we reproduce them you know in a couple inches in in a book of course we've lost some of that kind of feeling of sort of almost being in the land almost um, kind of as you were implying. Um, I think the sequence is really interesting because these are travel books. So the sense that is often used in them of uh, sort of the journey through a space um, as you move sequentially through the book, you usually sort of progress through a geographic space. Um, some books play with that, I think, um more than others. Some books feel like just a kind of collection of, of, of separate images. Um, uh, but others really use that, that function of, uh, of moving through time and space in the sequence of the pages um, themselves, which is, which is really fascinating.
0: Hmm. Right. Now let's go on to, uh, to chapter two, In the Shadow of Les Grands. Um, and here you go on to discuss the fate of one individual associated with the French artist Louis-François Cassez. His ambitious travel book, which in your words can be seen as a kind of eastern Mediterranean panorama uh, covering several regions within the Ottoman Empire, is a monument in its own right. Cassez expands the monumental not just into his landscapes, but also into the human realm as well. Um, and I would like you to talk a bit more about these, this monumentality of Cassette's work and indeed his ambitions, uh, which are in contrast, really, to the ill fate of his project.
1: Yeah, yeah, he's he's extraordinarily fascinating, um, and he is definitely one of those cases, as you pointed out, of uh, who has become largely forgotten now, really... Uh, Alas, uh, because the 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 book that he was producing and the images that he was producing are extraordinary. They are extraordinarily beautiful. Um, he was kind of an underling. He he was not a conventional. Uh, Louis François Cassas was not a conventional artist. Had not followed the conventional routes to, you know, uh, fame and um, fortune. He uh, was a provincial artist who became a drawing master, um, working with some wealthy families, some aristocratic families, giving him connections of all sorts, uh, leading him to go to Rome. Uh, He was supported in this uh, by various sponsors. Um, And gradually, he comes to know Choiseul Gouffier, who is constantly looking for new artists to add to his cadre to his pool of uh, working assistants. Um, so, Schwazel sends him out uh, for about two years into uh, the Ottoman Empire, a good bit of the Ottoman Empire. He travels through places that other people did not travel. Um, and uh he accomplishes this, comes back, spends time in Rome again, as he's beginning to put this uh book together um, and it's right around this time that uh he begins to seek greater independence. Uh, he begins to try to sort of sell some of his drawings. Uh, Choiseul hears about this and is very upset about it um, because he regards all of these things that uh, Cassas has produced as his. He has paid the artist an allowance. Um, and uh, Casas keeps on pushing on things and there's a lot of feuding between them. And it's around this time that the uh, French revolution breaks out. um, And uh, through this, you know, this great upheaval and sort of the shifting of, property and notions of citizenship, Casas, uh, uh, I mean to say, is is able to say, well, this is now my travel book, largely because Kassas uh, Gouffier uh, becomes an emigre. He leaves Istanbul under a cloud um, and goes to Russia. Uh, and so his property is taken from him and he loses the rights of citizenship. And Casas is able to market his the book, uh, as his book, uh, to the um, the Revolutionary uh, Committee, the uh, Comité de Salut Public. And uh, they accept it. They say, okay, we will, we will support your your book. But always in the background of this, uh, the making of this extraordinary book is uh, the sense of kind of competing with Schwezel and needing to somehow stand up against uh, these uh, great works that have been produced before him, particularly Schwezel's uh, and his own sense, Cassas' own sense of sort of marginality. So uh, There is a sense uh, in Casas's work and publication that he's always kind of trying to outdo these uh, other people and and sort of stand uh, independently, and that this leads to a kind of exaggeration of things. Um, Many more images, for instance, than what Schwezel produced. He's working with at least twice, not three times, the numbers of engravers that Schwezel uh, worked with, a far more ambitious uh, project. you know, projected to be three volumes from its uh, very inception. Um, The scale of his images, some of them are vast, uh, you know, Three three times the, the size of one page, um, even the figures that he places in his um, in his sort of panoramic views of the Eastern Mediterranean are kind of outsized figures um, that appear to be monumental in a way that uh, was not conventional for you know the picturesque voyage genre. So in all these ways, I read him as kind of making a stake for his independence and trying to overcome. Uh, his marginality uh, within the world of publishing and you know the art world
0: great, um, and yet he s- remains an underdog in a way, um, especially in comparison uh, to the two nobles of Forbin and Choiseul, who could who who were able to rely on inherited wealth and family connections for the success of their endeavors um, perhaps. Perhaps not coincidentally, then, Kassas' story is one of failure. Uh, the monumental book project he undertook was never fully completed, and his aspired petite fortune and independence from his wealthy patron never um, acquired. Um, and yet you decide uh, to dedicate a significant amount of your book to Kassass, uh his travels and the book project. Um, and you've already mentioned uh, you know, one of it's a shame he's he's been so neglected um, over time because his his drawings his um, yeah drawings are so incredibly beautiful. Um, but are there other reasons? Or why do you think it is so important to remember his, his story of failure in particular?
1: Yeah, I mean, part of it is, of course, the the way in which. Um, a kind of Orientalist narrative to some degree, which ties, uh, this kind of imagery to, uh, you know, uh, notions of conquest and cultural, the cultural inferiority of, you know, the Ottomans. Um, uh, and so a kind of triumphalist, uh, discourse of conquest, um, and othering, um, all of that I think is countered by this great case of this wonderful uh, book, which has some very deeply orientalist commitments um, in various ways and places. Um, but this book fails fails to be what it was supposed to be, um, and I and I think that's just a really interesting perspective in the you know kind of uh, colonialist uh, orientalist uh, discourse that we have and that we've inherited. How it's been sort of devised over you know last you know 30 40 years um, so I think it's, it's it's really interesting to point out that there is defeat or there is failure there's a failure to be as well as a, a kind of triumph or conquest um, so I think I, I think that's one of the reasons um, that it that it's uh, really a uh, really fascinating Thing. And, of course, by no means do I mean to imply that Casas is a failed artist uh, or that somehow, you know, his work is insignificant uh, or not good in some technical artistic uh, way uh, at all. Uh, quite the contrary. Uh, some of the reasons why his project cannot come into existence are, are uh, contingencies. Um, they have to do with uh, f- one, and first and foremost, probably uh, Schwoazel returning from exile um, and accepting uh, Napoleon's uh, amnesty. Uh, and he immediately engages in a lawsuit and re- tries to reclaim uh, Cassas's project as his property and spends quite a, a number of years uh, writing to um various ministries using his connections and um, trying to get back the property. Uh, he doesn't seem to have ever succeeded. He seems simply to have succeeded in stalling the project. Um, uh, money is running a little slim during the Napoleonic Empire because you know money being used for military purposes uh, and so the, the governmental support for the project uh, for Casas's project um, is not as strong as it had been uh, previously um, and it just sort of sputters out um, for a lot of contingent reasons and this notion of contingency was also something that I was very uh, interested in that there are so many parts to how these kinds of publications, these kinds of images are produced. Um, and if we understand them in these contextual ways, uh, it's a lot harder to see them as uh, simple uh, sort of s- simple means or expressions of a kind of dominant uh, perspective, a kind of colonialist uh, conquest.
0: Right. This, again, ties in very nicely with uh, chapter three, the translator's art, in which, which concerns itself with the extraordinary Tableau General de l'Empire Ottoman by Ottoman-Armenian Murajo Doson. I hope I pronounced this correctly. Uh, please do correct me if I'm wrong. The three volumes were published between 1787 and 1820, so shortly after the Russian defeat of the Ottomans in 1774. By discussing the marvellous images and text of Dosson, you highlight the chosen likenesses between French and Ottoman imperial cultures as pictured in the book, Uh, beginning with the striking visual references Dosson makes to Chanson's Voyage Pigouesque, and continuing with the adaptation of, quote-unquote, Persian manuscript paintings into engravings as well. And here you stipulate that the, the goal was indeed to blur the boundaries between French and Ottoman forms, and you show this by discussing several of the uh, so-called Persian manuscripts, um, and then the French engravings side by side. Um, there are, of course, striking differences uh, between these two um, uh, different genres, if you will, um, and to, to my mind, uh, the, the engravings reveal striking differences which point to the to, to the fact that seeing is culturally determined. so when a French engraver looks at Persian album uh, at a Persian album leaf, he or she might highlight certain aspects while eliminating others that would be important in the other context. So in a way, I'm kind of um, challenging um, your argument here. Um, yeah And I was wondering if you could comment.
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Yeah, uh, Muraja Dosen, you're absolutely right. Um, Yeah, I mean, he's, of course, uh, he's what uh, is called a dragoman. He's an interpreter uh, working for the Ottomans. um, And dragomans are are not just people who deal with language, but they are really um, dealing with kind of cultural connection. Um, They are really diplomats in their own right. Um, And I see that as really very much a part of what he's doing when he comes to Paris and, uh, you know, leaving the Ottoman empire, coming to Paris uh, to make this book, which is a really interesting choice. And some of it has to do with the fact that, you know, the French book trade is um, in a sort of glory moment. So he made that choice, um, I think, you know, rather uh, uh, pointedly, but I see him operating as a kind of emissary for the, the, the Ottomans. Um, This is, as you said, a a moment in which the Ottoman Empire is in a kind of fraught position, having recently lost to uh, the Russians in the um, Russian-Ottoman war. And um, uh, he's not operating in an official capacity, but uh, we know he's probably uh, sort of attempting to curry favor with the with sultan in acting as a kind of uh, emissary who represents and defends Ottoman culture, which is my argument um, about his book. Um, so I see him essentially trying to uh, create a sort of, a sense of overlap, a sense of, you know, that we can compare European culture and Ottoman culture, and we can sort of talk about similarities and differences, but that we can put them in the same essential frame. Um, And so thereby feeling a a relative sense of familiarity or comfort uh, uh, in, in, in sort of uh, both worlds. So he wrote the text, right? And so he's, I think, I think the text really does attempt to do that, to, to create the sense of imbrication, of sort of overlap um, very strongly. And, and, and we can see that, again, as a kind of almost expression of his diplomatic role. For text, he has no capacity himself to make uh, images, and he claims throughout that he has used uh, images uh that were produced in the Ottoman Empire and has brought them to France, um, and uh, those images are the basis for the uh, engravings, the beautiful engravings, uh, in his book. So that and that's really important prong to his claim to be producing something authentically Ottoman, right? That these that's the source of the images. We can we know some of those images, as you pointed out, some of them actually we. Can quite clearly see came from a very specific Ottoman uh, manuscript. Um, So we actually have paintings that we can look at and compare to the engravings, and that really is. A very interesting exercise. What you say is is interesting. That certainly one can see that they that the engravings themselves, which are all made by French engravers, uh, they're certainly not Ottoman looking um, for all sorts of reasons. They, you know. Um, on the other hand, what's very interesting about them is they are not terribly French looking either, um, and that's what really piqued my interest and what got me involved in this book is trying to understand where these images came from. My first glance at it, I had no knowledge of of, of where he came from and why he made this. Uh, And I was just responding to the images. They really don't look like French engravings for the most part. There are a few exceptions. Uh, So one of the things that really interested me was just the varieties of images, uh, some of them looking very French, some of them looking sort of uh, like something sort of halfway French, and then some of them looking even less French. So the sense that in looking at the book, that you're looking at degrees of translation, um, I think was very important to my reading and I think it comes partly because Dosen himself talks constantly about that fact that the images come from the Ottoman Empire. So any reader knows that these are not, uh, the the engravings are made after Ottoman paintings. And so the reader would be aware of this process, um, this process of translation. Um, So I, I, I felt that it, forces the reader, the book forces the reader into a kind of experience of cultural translation and, and kind of cultural encounter uh, in thinking through these varieties of approaches. Um, and then we have some really interesting writer writing by uh, the person who was, uh, the engraver who was charged with overseeing all of the engravings, um, uh, a well-known 18th century French engraver uh, named Cochin. Uh, he wrote quite a bit about uh, what he was doing and what he was seeing. And uh, he uh, writes very explicitly about the process. He complains about the quality of the Ottoman paintings. He regards them clearly as very different from French art and uh, problematic because they are not perspectival. Uh, But he also says that they have a quality of truth uh, and authenticity to them and that um, the most difficult thing for him as an engraver is to try to retain that quality of truth. Um, even as he makes engravings that he will find acceptable to present you know, to the art world of the late 18th century um, and this led me to think about um, what uh, in translation theory is called markedness, uh, the way in which some translations attempt to retain something of the texture of the original language, uh, even as, uh, you know, they change words and, and other things into, into, a, into a foreign language. And I felt that Cochin and Cochin's uh, engravings attempted to do this. And I call this a kind of performing ottomanness that he is in order to do that he has to look carefully at the ottoman images that he worked from and study them in a way so he himself is engaged in a kind of cultural encounter as he produces the engravings for this book um that he's you know really having to think about what what makes this look ottoman and What can I do when I make the engraving, when I make the reproduction of this image to avoid kind of obliterating that quality? So he had to probably think very carefully about similarities and differences between Ottoman art. And I think one feels that in his engravings and some of the others. There are other engravings where clearly the maker said, you know, I don't care, <laughs> you know. I want to make a beautiful French engraving, and I'm I'm just going to completely ignore uh, the sort of qualities that seem different, and and just com- completely overcome them. Um, so it's it's a, it's a fascinating uh, process, and it's a, a fascinating uh, sort of uh, sense of varieties of approach of approaches, visual approaches to the art of translation.
0: I think. Now, let's get to chapter four, in which you discuss Melling's Istanbul in miniatures in black and white. Melling, a European artist, had worked for Selim and his sister for nearly 20 years, um, and he also built Selim's sister's palaces and garden. Um, In the images of Melling's travel book, Voyage pittoresque de Constantinople, um, published in 1819, you argue that Melling identified in many ways with Ottoman culture. And I would like you to talk a bit more about this and how this contributes to the overall argument of your book.
1: Yes, uh, he's a really, really interesting case uh, because he spent uh, such a long time in Istanbul and arrived there as a young artist and lived there for about, 18 years. Um, And um, so I'm really trying to kind of deconstruct the idea that anytime a European is depicting the Ottomans, they're looking at the Ottomans sort of as an outsider or without knowledge or without uh, deeper understanding um, or allegiance. Um, in his case actually to the sultan and and his family Um, well uh, one of the things that was really that's very prominent in his book is the fact that it features waterways and very specifically the Bosphorus uh, which is so different from the kinds of images that you tend to see in other travel books Um, and that was so notable that I had to kind of really think that through Um, and I was really helped by uh, the research of uh, Shirin Hamada who has worked a lot on 18th century Istanbul and a kind of development of a new form of urbanization with the spread of uh, suburban houses, residences, palaces, really, uh, along the Bosphorus. Um, And the sultan himself participates in this, um, in the construction of uh, suburban Istanbul, again, along the water. And it's part of his larger desire to be very visible uh, to uh, the people, to his people, to to anyone uh, and to really uh, promote his presence uh, in the world uh, rather than do what he had done in the past, what sultans had done in the past, which was sort of to hide away in Topkaba Palace and be very... uh, uh, Reclusive, be very sort of hidden. Um, So the fact that uh, Melling features uh, the waterways and these palaces built by the Sultan, they're called yalas, a certain palatial type, uh, so prominently was really one uh, major clue. But he also picks up on uh, new visual genres that were developing as he was in Istanbul uh, that sort of begin in the imperial palace, um, and that is a kind of mural painting uh, which builds from. Uh, painting traditions, book painting traditions in the Ottoman Empire, uh, but now is uh, on view uh, in within palaces themselves. And they actually depict these yalas, these palaces, these waterfront palaces and Bosphorus views. And his his prints look very much like those uh, mural paintings. Um, so it was very clear that he was dealing with a kind of uh, Ottoman visual culture uh, both in his understanding of sort of sultanic ideology, but also uh, in terms of the kind of visual cues uh, um, in his work. And it's very different from other artists who who don't register those things at all, even when they're depicting those palaces or the Bosphorus, they just depict them in a very, very different way. Um, So he was important for me because he really is a very cross-cultural figure, very profoundly so, you know, he returns to Europe, uh, when he's in his early 40s, so he's now a middle-aged person who has spent you know, all of his years kind of learning to be an artist within the Ottoman court, and so I argue that he's actually a, an Ottoman court artist, really, um, and so that we should sort of Challenge this notion of him as, you know, since he was born in Europe, that he was, he's remained simply a European artist when he makes his travel book, uh, which he makes in, in Paris. Uh, so it's very important to me to really look at this particular case, because I think it uh, kind of complicates um, the way we talk about Ottoman-European relations to look at a figure, mm, like this.
0: definitely, yeah, and it ties in very nicely with the third part of the book as well. But I do want to follow up on the the comparison between the mural paintings and the illustrations for a published book, ultimately or an album, um, because it's I think it's I- interesting, and I was wondering whether you could say just a few more words on how the iconography was, um, you know, maybe adapted or um, similar in many ways because mural paintings would have been architecturally, you know, indoors and, and seen in a very different way to, um, an album or a book.
1: Yeah, uh, there are many very striking aspects of of them. I mean, uh, one is just the themes, the subject matter. They tend to, mural paintings uh, tend to depict, uh, again, Bosphorus views. I mean, that's almost exclusively what they depict, even as the type uh, of mural painting spreads out way beyond Istanbul into other places within the Ottoman Empire. They continue to depict the Bosphorus, which is very striking. And these yalas, this very specific political, type, which is a waterfront palace. Um, so the subject matter is very similar to uh, Melling's subject matter in his prints. And then the way of depicting things with this very linear emphasis, uh, very hard uh, kind of outlines, um, a great kind of emphasis on kind of clarity, uh, a kind of horizontal uh, structure, which is very similar to the horizontal uh, thrust uh, or format of Melling's prints, uh, uh, the same kind of angles of vision, sort of generally, not always, but uh, sort of a low lying angle, uh, um, you know, from which one sees these palaces along the Bosphorus is shared again both by the mural paintings uh, and Melling. And then this kind of focus on detail, uh, uh, a detail without uh, any kind of discrimination of sort of center and periphery, uh, visually, both forms uh, sort of treat everything with kind of equal emphasis. All of these things make them very strikingly uh, alike. You know, one of the things that's fascinating about mural paintings is that they depict a view that you could have by looking through these great uh, uh, walls of of window, um, which was typical of the kind of palace Uh, uh, architecture, the yala. Um, And so they depict what you actually would see looking out of these windows. Um, But also they could depict uh, what you would see uh, from outside of uh, the yala, looking at a yala, because of course you can see from both sides. Um, And this kind of notion of transparency, I think is uh, something that uh, Melling picks up in the way that those uh, prints are structured, Um, there's sort of an emphasis on everything being kind of out in the open and great clarity. Uh, There are no shadows, there are no trees. Uh, So I think that he's actually working on a kind of aesthetics of transparency, which is both the aesthetic of the mural painting uh, and its function within the Yala and how a Yala works as a form of architecture, but also what the sultan wants. He wants this kind of uh, visibility and transparency. So it sort of operates on several levels. Hmm,
0: fascinating. Uh, detail is definitely also something that Louis Dupré, in the next chapter, uh, that you go on to discuss in the next chapter, in chapter five, um, is uh, is keen is prone towards, if you will, um, and so we're moving on to part three of the book called Contradictory Contact, and he really de- demonstrate further um, that travellers were not trapped within preconceived discourses, but rather interacted with other peoples in similar ways as you've already uh, done in um, in the case of Melling, and in chapter five. As I say, you go on to discuss Louis Dupré's costume albums, which were made for the Voyage à Athènes et à Constantinople, which was published in Paris in 1825, so slightly later than Melling. Um, It is from this body of works that you also choose the cover image of your book called The Palace and the Fortress of Aionia, seen from the lake, uh, a Turk and a young Greek. And these representations of costume convey cultural identity in a similar way um, maybe as as monuments and panoramas do uh, in the case of Melling for example. Um, And so I would like you to talk uh, a bit more about dress as topographical body and maybe also tell our listeners why you chose this one particular image by Dupré as a front cover.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah um yeah Dupré's images are are really uh fascinating um and they do feature costume which is very interesting um it's a travel book it's it's really not a costume book but but the costume is so foregrounded that um that was something that I thought I really uh needed to account for somehow you know there is this genre of uh, costume album that was produced both in Europe and uh in the Ottoman Empire by Ottoman artists um, that are you know, costume images, just sim- simply uh, s- single figures, usually on a, a page, uh, you know, depicting the costume of a given type within the Ottoman Empire. Um, and I think he really plays off of that um, because uh, his images, again, foreground costume, but they're usually scenic, they're settings, uh, they have uh, kind of, most of them, not all of them, have whole context, they have people interacting. Um, Uh, So that's very striking about um, his work. That particular image um, was striking for the, you know, the cover of the book, because um, it does depict a a Greek and a Turk, so-called. I mean, this is the language of um, uh, kind of uh, European usage. Um, The person who's called a Turk would more likely to simply be called a, an Ottoman, um, because he's of the Ottoman elite, but this kind of very close interaction, they're sitting in a boat together, um, kind of very, uh, you know, very close to each other. Uh, it's very ambiguous. We don't know, uh, what's, what's happening. We don't know, you know, who they are exactly. The travel uh, account, the actual writing of Dupre's book doesn't explain any more about their identity. So we just have this, uh, title, uh, Turk and and Greek. Um, And they're uh, in front of a really famous palace that belonged to Ali Pasha, who was uh, the Ottoman-appointed Albanian ruler in Yanina in sort of northwest uh, Greece uh, today. So it kind of alludes to some sort of larger uh, power construct. But what's really fascinating about this image and what makes his images in general stand out is not just that he departs from this kind of very strict... Uh, costume types, but the way in which uh, it is filled with all these signs of what we might call temporality, um, and contact, uh, the fact that we're looking at a very, very particular moment, Um, and it gives his images a kind of ambiguity and a charge, uh, and this feeling of interaction, the feeling of his presence, uh, you know, that he's hovering in front of these views, looking at these people, interacting with these people, that really just completely, to my mind, departs from the genre, both of costume images and uh, travel images. So, you know, his text uh, for this book in many ways is very practically stereotypical. It's uh, what we call a Philhellenic text, it is uh, written. Um, during the uh, uh, the Greek War of Independence against the Ottomans, and which uh, Western Europeans very much identified with and very much supported uh, the Greeks, so it's filled with this kind of invective against the Ottomans and um, you know kind of a pro-Greek. Mentality, uh, but when we look at his images, we feel something very different from this very kind of stock kind of of uh, view that the text conveys. The text conveys just uh, you know very, uh, again, very typical sort of ideas of that moment towards the Ottomans and not very friendly ones. Um, but that kind of uh, kind of distance perspective that the text conveys is just not there in the images because of this real, really strong sense of. Of again presence and interaction, they're very individualized. Um, in that particular print, we see you know a, a bird flying overhead. There's an oar that's dripping water. Um, there's a, kind of this uh, look of uh, sunlight, kind of. Uh, dappled, you know, and reflecting across the faces of these figures. Uh, They're both sort of looking outwards as though their attention is caught by something. So all these really curious and ambiguous elements that suggest, uh, again, a kind of lively interaction and you know, the fact that Dupre himself knew these people. Um, so different from that kind of stereotyped view that his text and also other kinds of costume images tend to hmm. tend to. Depict.
0: And also in the last chapter, in chapter six, uh, things are not what they seem to be. Here you discuss Delacroix's sketches from his travels to North Africa in 1932. These works are really beautifully intricate and intimate. And they really problematize, if you will, the body of works uh, of work that Delacroix is generally known for. As such, the sketchbooks are particularly important, in your words, because they do not confirm an unremittent sameness or seamless continuity with all imperialist imagery. And rather, you situate them, the sketchbooks, within a context of ambiguities and insecurities, even of a European traveller in a place where he had little control. And again, I would like you to elaborate on these points and what you mean by that, maybe even by discussing one of the sketchbooks. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. I had difficulties seeing the insecurities within these um, um, really intricate works of Delacroix. Yeah. That's fine. <laughs>
1: um yeah, he uh they, they were a complete surprise to me when I first um encountered those uh sketchbooks because I would say fundamentally in their making they are so different from what uh Delacroix did when he did, you know, basically they're watercolors and drawings. So they're, it's a sketching technique. So it, it's a drawing-based um, medium, really, uh, uh, typical of kind of travel imagery made in situ, right? Um, and you know. If, one is familiar with uh, his practices as a draftsman. Um, that's when you begin to see these differences, and that's that's kind of what I was building from. Just this really, this really strong sense of of difference. That, you know that he's really stepped away from what he normally does, um, and that that was became very important to me uh, because uh, yes, there was there's a kind of language around. Uh, his journey to North Africa, or indeed anyone's, any artist's encounter of the so-called Orient or you know, the East or what have you, has always been kind of, has long been dealt with as this kind of, again, unremitting sameness, sort of, you know, they were informed by certain cultural prejudices, these artists uh traveling, they confirm these cultural prejudices, they return with their cultural prejudices intact, and continue to make images as they did before their their journeys. Um, And looking at these sketchbooks, I thought, no, there's something else going on here. Uh, And we really need to account for the very specific things that happen when people travel. uh, And that you know, there there are lots of other experiences that kind of impinge on what the artist is, that the artist is not some kind of essence that's, you know, just transported around and always staying the same, but is, you know, modified by experiences. Um, uh, And so I began thinking about that whole notion of cultural contact. Um, This was really the genesis of the whole project because um, I was really thinking about... uh, how we could formulate, uh, travel and, 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 and contact in a way that would, you know, be a little more nuanced. Right. Um, so that was kind of my, uh, point of departure. And, and, you know, I began building from very specific things that I saw. I can, you know, talk about a few of them here. Um, I mean, one of them, uh, is the sense of distance that we have, uh, in his work, um, from everything he sees, very different from Dupre, uh, where we feel that contact constantly. Uh, but that sense of not having access to things, uh, that is, I think, part of the feeling of constraint about around those images. He was traveling under very specific circumstances. They were not traveling to a place when they were in Morocco, where the French had any control whatsoever, they were traveling to a sovereign empire with a sultan. They traveled with armed guards, uh, with escorts. They were made to stay in camps away from any town and any city. So they did not have direct contact. Um, and even once they get to the imperial city of uh, Meknez, uh, they are again, their movements are very controlled um, and, and, and very specific. Uh, they're told when they can go places, where they can go, who they can go with, uh, things like this, he, Delacroix and this diplomatic mission that he Uh, accompanied so again that sense of constraint i think is partly visible in in the distance uh that we from which we see everything um and that's even where he gets direct access i mean we could take the example of uh one of the um very lovely uh drawings that i discussed the jewish bride um where he actually is in a home uh the Jewish interpreter who accompanied him sort of gave him access to families and you know Jewish families, which is where he had the closest contact uh, with people. And uh, there's something very specific about the way that he renders uh, this young woman uh, with a kind of constraint, I might say, desexualization or de-eroticization that is completely uh, you know different from the kinds of uh, images of, what we call might call others or othering that um, uh, we would typically experience in Delacroix's uh, imagery of of women. Uh, there's a sense of of kind of remove, a kind of stiffness even in the drawing, which is very different from his sort of gestural practice of drawing. Um, just a, a sense of of kind of discomfort and lack of access. So those are. A, a couple of things. Um, I think one of the most important things for me was uh, his constant depiction, particularly when he gets to the imperial city of thresholds, but they're, they're sort of throughout the notebooks, these sort of doorways and windows and walls and gates. Uh, so we see constantly ways in which French presence is mediated. Um, This constant representation of being outside something, trying to look into something, but of course not being inside of those things, which I think is really a theme, you know, thematizes the traveler, the the situation of a traveler. You know, traveler isn't inside, but sort of outside looking in, uh, but also lack of access, lack of control. Uh, And I think it's really important because in travel imagery, uh, you know, if one looks comparatively, um, it's very frequently the case that the traveler makes no reference to himself. Um, that you know that the the travel images operate as though one has access to this culture, and uh, kind of erases the self from from those from those images um, in order to kind of capture this sort of you know, sort of purely exoticized vision of this other world, you know, without any contact with the European presence. Um but he's not doing that. And that that's struck me as 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 really very, very particular that he's constantly alluding to himself by virtue of these thresholds, these, you know, liminal spaces that he is, you know, hovering outside of. Um, and they have an even almost illicit Quality, sort of like views that one should not have or would like to have but cannot have, uh, that I think is so self-referential and so fraught um, that they really they really stand for that uh, that kind of uh, again that sort of uh, powerlessness I would say um, that he felt. I mean. It, really one has to look at these images within a a kind of large history of uh, both Delacroix's own imagery and how he departs both in very specific technical ways and thematic ways, but also travel images and what they typically do and do not do. And within that context, I think they're very specific and really, really very precious.
0: Hmm. And in the postscript, you also add... um make another point which is, is that these all these works discussed really um were so particular um and could have not really worked at any other time period so so that you know later periods um later into the 19th century when um, yeah when the when the british empire really kind of um expanded, uh, and became even more powerful. Um, these work works would have maybe not been, um, created in the same way. Would that be fair to say? Or, um,
1: yeah, I mean, I think, um, it's definitely one of the things that I really wanted to accomplish with this book is to look at very particular circumstances. Um, and, um, understand all the things that are at stake, both in a a sort of an individual traveler's presence and knowledge and commitments, uh, but also, you know, the relations of, you know, a French traveler, a British traveler, because of, uh, you know, sort of world issues, um, historical issues, political issues, um, that all of those things uh, play a role in, in, in what happens. And I do think, I mean, it's generally thought that sort of as the 19th century progresses, of course, and as kind of uh, uh, Western European colonialism really develops as a kind of ideology that um, things become more fraught and, and, and hardened. Um, and, you know, there is kind of a, a full blown sort of, you know, Orientalism. So, so, on the one hand, I think all images are very specific. On the other hand, there's also this larger discourse about uh kind of growing orientalism and growing colonialism. Uh, and I'm sort of looking at this moment where I think, you know, there's still a lot of uh uh kind of bilateral uh looking, you know, uh, uh multi-directional interactions um that I think uh are very important on the other hand i would also say that even when within the most sort of rabid uh, orientalist discourse one can probably always find some elements of contact and exchange happening kind of underneath
0: that's these are wonderful uh, last wo- words i think to 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 this interview um maybe to wrap this up you can tell our listeners what it is that you're working on now that you've uh finished this magnum opus really
1: <laughs> yes well uh
0: i became so excited
1: about these costume albums uh uh, in part well through, through, through I think many of the, the the travelers projects that I was looking at um, and then I realized it was very particular so uh, the fact that a, as Europeans are creating these costume books beginning really in the sixteenth century that the Ottomans also are producing costume albums uh, both depicting the the Ottoman Empire uh, and that there is some kind of cross cultural interaction in this genre so uh, that there is that the genre itself really probably should be called, uh, you know, kind of transcultural form itself. Um, and that became so uh, engaging to me that I I really wanted to pursue that. So um, yeah, that's my next project is kind of about that interaction and how to understand. it. also tried trying to understand it, not as a kind of in a, in a sort of uh, exclusively Eurocentric way, which is, you know, alas, too often the case, uh, both with travel books, but also costume albums and books. Uh, but to really understand sort of what the Ottomans bring to this and how Europeans are often trying themselves to kind of uh, produce uh, travel costume imagery that looks Ottoman itself. So, uh, yes, it, it extends very much uh, out from the, the project of um, Mediterranean encounters
0: fascinating i'm very much looking forward to reading uh your next book and for now i thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me about um your book mediterranean encounters artists between europe and the ottoman empire between 1774 and 1839 thank you elizabeth thank you ricarda it was really great